Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. So before we get on to this week's episode, you may have seen that I ran a competition on Instagram to win advertising on this podcast. We are living in unbelievably challenging times for small businesses of all kinds. And I was wondering what I could do to help. And I came up with this idea, which was what if I gave away for free advertising spots on the podcast, which I would usually reserve for big brands, as you know, if you listen to the podcast regularly, like Sainsbury's and Sweaty Betty. So I ran this competition on Instagram to win this advertising spot. And the winner I'm so excited to announce is a beautiful business called The Mummer's Village. The Mummer's Village was actually started in lockdown by seven mums after the franchise that they all worked for went under. They're all from different backgrounds and parenting experiences and are incredibly passionate about providing unbiased education and support. So the Mummers Village offers evidence-based antenatal and postnatal education, both in person in Surrey, Hampshire and Berkshire and via Zoom. The antenatal classes look fantastic. They cover everything from hypnobirthing. And you know I'm a huge fan of hypnobirthing if you're a regular listener of the podcast. I used it in both my home births to a newborn essentials skills, which looks fantastic and much, much more on the website. So please do go and check it out. The website is www.themummersvillage.co.uk that's themummersvillage.co.uk and if you want to book onto any of their courses they are very kindly offering a 10% off all listeners of the podcast just use the code motherkind at checkout that's mummersvillage.co.uk using the code motherkind at checkout here is this week's episode Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Mother Kind podcast. This week's guest is Josh Connolly. Josh is one of the UK's most influential mental health advocates. He is a child of an addict. He is also an addict in recovery himself and he is a dad of four. So in this episode we really unpack how dysfunction and trauma and addiction gets passed down from generation to generation. We talk about how to help people that we may know who struggle with addiction. We talk about how to help ourselves if we struggle with that tendency to want to avoid our feelings, which is what addiction really is. We talk about how being able to hold space for our children and to let them know that all feelings are welcome and valid is the most important thing that we can do if we want to stop the juggernaut of pain and dysfunction that perhaps many of us experienced in our own childhoods. Josh talks really passionately about why positive thinking, spiritual bypassing and whitewashing our feelings can be so dangerous and we really get into why that seems to be happening in the well-being space at the moment. Right at the end of the interview, Josh shares something that I think 
every single parent in the world needs to hear. It's incredibly powerful. I hope you really enjoy this episode. This is one of my favorites I've recorded recently. I absolutely loved this conversation, which I'm sure you could hear in my voice and the passion and the energy that Josh and I share about many of our own shared experiences. So I hope you really enjoy it. As ever, please do share it with someone else. If you know someone who perhaps had a dysfunctional childhood or perhaps had a parent who is an addict or may know someone who is an addict, please do share it with them. It is so vital that we get these messages out there. You know, as Josh and I talk about, in the mainstream media, there is so much unhelpful messaging around this stuff. And I truly believe that the conversations that we have on this podcast has the potential to be transformative. So please do share it. And if you pop onto my website, motherkind.co, you will find on there tons of resources, lots of freebies, links to the show notes for this episode where there's a full transcript and links to any resources that Josh and I mention. So here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Josh, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting to you this morning. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and seeing where we go with it. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I've spent the last couple of days researching everything that I can find about you. And what I find so exciting for what might unfold this morning is how much we have in common. I too am an adult child of addicts. You know, one of my parents is an alcoholic and I've tracked addiction and dysfunction back five generations in my family through a genogram, which I'm sure you know all about. And I too, you know, we're going to get into fatherhood and how that was a pivotal moment in your healing, but it was the same for me with motherhood. So I can't wait for my community to hear about your story and your mission and your passion. And I'm really excited about this one. So first up, tell us a bit about your story, because you went from being suicidal, seriously contemplating taking your own life to getting sober. Yeah, so my story kind of really starts at the moment that I got sober. And when I got sober and I removed all of the ways that I had used, or certainly all the substances anyway, that I had used as a way of escaping how I felt, I recognized all my feelings and my emotions came flooding back. And initially, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't deal with the ways that it was making me feel and having no fixed escape from that. I was fortunate that it was then that I found NACOA, the National Association for Children of Alcoholics. And when I found them, that's when I started to realize that some of the ways that I felt, or most of, nearly all of the ways that I felt, actually made a lot of sense when I started to look at my story. I had always kind of hidden behind ideals and perceptions of the ways in which I grew up. I would say things like there was always food on the table. My dad worked hard. He just drank a little bit too much sometimes. But my reality, when I started to look even a little bit closer, was a heck of a lot different. And I realized actually that my truth was is that I remembered a really difficult childhood. My dad was a violent, angry, chaotic man who scared me when he was drunk. And, and to be honest with you, scared me when he was sober as well. And I think being able to kind of look back over that, I started to realize that the path in which my life had taken had been so heavily influenced by those interactions in my childhood. It was a difficult wake-up call, but it was a wake-up call that allowed me to then begin the journey. It took me from a place where I believed that I was born the way that I was, and this is just the way that I am, to 
contemplating the idea that my childhood and the ways in which I interacted with it had actually shaped the man that I was. The real freedom in that came from, okay, if I've been shaped this way, maybe I can reshape this. Maybe I can change this and maybe I can create something meaningful in my life. And that's been the journey that I've been on for the last kind of eight years since then. And as messy a journey as it's been, it's been a really healing one and one that's allowed me to be the man that I'm becoming in my life today. That's kind of a short overview. I'm sure we're going to get into a lot more of it as we go. That's the broad overview of what happened. What I love about that summary that you just gave is you were having all these problems, you know, you felt suicidal. And yet at that time, you weren't linking that back to your childhood. And I, you know, I was so lucky in so many ways because my family imploded in a really spectacular way. So I got into Al-Anon, which I'm sure you know, is a 12-step mm-hmm. recovery for family and friends of alcoholics. And that enabled me quite quickly to unpack my childhood. But I see and hear this, I'm sure you do, time and time again. And it's a protective mechanism that we think, oh no, my childhood was fine. It has nothing to do with how I'm feeling today. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, and I know, it has everything to do with how we're feeling today. So mm-hmm. how did you begin to unpack some of those experiences? Was it through therapy? Was it through journaling? Can you just explain how you went from that kind of nothing to see here to actually beginning to unpack it as part of that start of your healing journey? So originally when I stopped drinking, I went to 12-step fellowships as well. So I went to AA as a way of stopping drinking. But then as well, when I found Nakoa in the way that I did, it was the first time that probably in, in a similar way to what Alanon did for you, it gave me a sense of belonging and a feeling that I was part of something safe where I could share my feelings without anybody needing to fix or change me. And I think that's the really important part. We do this thing where we kind of, reframe and pull people out of their emotions without letting them fully experience them in their whole entirety. And for me, what happened was, is I was actually nine months sober when I decided to take my own life. I made what felt like a very honest and noble decision to do it. I thought it was the best thing for my children. I had four children at the time and I went to see them. And because I knew that I was going to die, the past became irrelevant the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my children in a way that I'd never experienced before. I remember cuddling my daughter and thinking, this is what it's supposed to feel like. I had always intellectually kind of known that I'd loved my children, but to actually feel it in my core was something very new for me, even at the age of 24 years old. And I changed my mind, but more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that what was killing me was coming from inside. And then From there, that kind of pushed me to a place where I said, from now on, I tell people exactly what I'm feeling. I tell them exactly what's going on in my mind and I don't filter it like I've done all of my life. So when I started to look back at my childhood, the first initial part of it for me was about original pain work. It was about going, I used to say, that I wasn't affected by the ways that my dad drunk. That's not true. When I think about it, it hurts me. It causes me pain and there's still wounds there. So the very first step, and that, by the way, coincided with finding Nakoa. So the very first step was literally to kind of go through my life with people that made me feel psychologically safe. So created a space where I felt like I would be heard 
and validated my feelings. I remember the first time I ever said to somebody, you know what, I think I feel a little bit angry at my dad drinking. I remember somebody at Nicoa being the first person ever to just go, that would make sense. All I'd ever heard was, well, your dad didn't mean it. It wasn't his fault. You know, he didn't mean to drink like that. He had a problem. All of those things are true and I understand them and I'm not devaluing them. But when they're fed to me at the expense of feeling how I truly feel, they become problematic. So to answer your question, the original work began by having people around me that made me feel safe enough to feel how I truly felt. And I think it's so important that we don't spiritually bypass, which is, I think, what you experienced, or toxic positivity. You know, that was so important to me as well. And and I had a therapist at the time who would always say to me, where's your anger? Mm. Where is your anger? And it was only when I was able to properly access it around some of the things that happened That was like another level of healing for me, like you. So your dad was an alcoholic. Can you talk to, you've touched on a few, but some of the adaptations that you made in order to make yourself safe in that childhood Mm -hmm. and how those culminated in, you know, how you felt when you hit this real low point around taking your own life. Some of those things that you did You've already talked about people pleasing, hiding your feelings. What are some of the other things? At the core, it was an abandonment of myself. As a child in the environment that I grew up in, my dad was the way that he was. My mum was kind of wrapped up in the way that my dad was. I saw my mum's pain. I felt like sharing my pain with my mum from a very young age would be a burden to her. I didn't want to burden her with the ways in which I felt. And so as a child, that meant abandoning myself. That meant not showing up in my true version of who I am, not bringing my true feelings to the table, instead pushing them down and becoming a version of myself. Now, we know that within any dysfunctional family environment, each family member tends to take on a role. My role, particular role in my family was to kind of be the mascot, to be the one that made everyone happy when they felt sad, to be the laugher and to be the joker. And so I grew up, you know, to be a young boy who was great at making friends, great at getting people in my life, great at being liked, really funny, able to see the humor in everything, some really great qualities. However, they came at the expense of myself. I'm an emotional person. I get overwhelmed easily. I'm sensitive. And I had to abandon all parts of myself when I was a child because they didn't fit into the system in which I existed in. So I had to become a version of something else. And very quickly, I became very good at reading who you wanted me to be and becoming that. The reason that becomes so problematic is because we know that loneliness is, you know, one of the big causes of any kind of emotional and mental health problem. We tend to link loneliness to the amount of people that we've got around us, but actually loneliness is also, but mainly driven by how much of myself I'm able to share with you. And if I've been conditioned as a child to push down all of myself and not share any of it with you, then it doesn't matter if I have 2,000 people in my life, I'm still alone. And there's a confusion that comes with that when you've got large social circles in the way that I did, but feel terribly alone. And that comes from that act of abandoning myself, not trusting the ways that I think and feel. And so not being able to show up to the people that I needed the most in the way that I needed to be in order to be able to get the love from them. And by the way, that act of self-abandonment creates an idea in my head that I'm not lovable just as who I am. And that's the biggest wound, the biggest internal trauma that I experienced as a child was the idea that I'm not lovable 
as the person that I truly am. Yeah, me too. And what I find so fascinating and what Al-Anon and other places that talk about this stuff is, in a way, how kind of predictable it is that the adaptations that we do, because everything that you're saying was exactly the adaptations that I did. Mm. You know, I became totally disconnected to myself. I totally abandoned myself in order to try and get the emotional connection from people, which through no fault of their own, couldn't give it to me because they didn't have it with themselves. Now, that's where my passion sits, is Mm -hmm. that in parenting, there's so much noise about the tips and the tricks, and this is how you get them to bed, and this is how you do that. And the reason I started Motherkind is because I thought, where is the conversation about our emotional availability to ourselves? Because if we can't do that, we can't give it to our children. Hence the cycle repeats, which is you and I are products of that cycle repeating. I believe as a parent, the greatest thing that I can do for my children is my self-healing work, is the healing work on myself. I kind of dislike the idea that you see out there that children are kind of these little animals that we've got to mould into being something rather than being consciously aware enough to try and support them into being who they're supposed to be. If I'm running away from certain emotions, I'm going to steer my children away from those emotions as well. Subconsciously, most of the time, but whatever I suppress in myself, I will suppress in my children. And then they will experience the same abandonment. They will experience the same level of lack of I amness, a lack of understanding that they're lovable just as who they are because they'll sense daddy doesn't like it when I show up being overly sensitive. So I better not be oversensitive, right? And then they don't get to be themselves. And we get to put that in a box and then we have to work with people like you or I or go to fellowships to start to unpack that stuff. But it starts with us, right? You're so right. Like if we Mm -hmm. can't hold all of our feelings, how on earth are we supposed to do that for our children? And I get really ranty, as you call it, about this (laughs) stuff because the parenting books just kind of miss this whole layer out. It's nonsensical to me. Yeah. And I mean, look, we've got to the stage where even now that mothers are taught certainly have been taught for a while now to put the baby down. Don't spoil the baby, right? If they're crying, put them down and, you know, ask any mother. And I know you're a mother yourself, so so you'll know, but how does your body feel and your mind feel when the baby's crying and you've been told to put it down? Your whole, your body's screaming that you go pick the baby up, right? So we're going against our bodily signs all of the time, right? And some of the ways that we parent. One of my biggest regrets as a parent is, practicing timeout I used to do timeout with my son because I was taught that that's what how you get them to do what you want them to do and timeout is literally telling my children don't be like that and if you do be the way that I don't want you to be I'm going to take away the very thing in which you crave which is a a human innate need which is attachment to me so I'm going to make you go and sit out there away from me and of course the thing with something like timeout is that it works because in the end, my son realizes I better shut up, otherwise I'm not going to get attachment, right? I can't imagine any other relationship in my life where I would treat somebody in that way. Well, it's a trauma. You know, I had Gabor Marte on the podcast and, you know, he said the same as you. Time yeah. works. Because if I put a gun to your head and told yeah. you to behave, of course you'd behave. But it's at what cost? You know, I don't do anything like that because I want my girls to know all your feelings are welcome here. Sure. Mm. Some behaviors aren't welcome and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to teach you and talk to you about that. But your feelings are welcome. Your anger is welcome. 
your frustration is welcome. It's all welcome because I think a huge part of addiction and dysfunction and just not showing up as ourselves starts at day dot when we get taught to push these feelings away, that it's not okay to be angry. You know, even when children cry, stop crying or they fall over and we say, get up, you've got nothing to cry about. The Mm -hmm. subconscious message is pretty strong, which is, you know, there are good feelings and bad feelings. And, you know, I've sat in thousands of hours of recovery meetings now, and I see this as such a thread through addiction of all types. There's this inability to sit with our feelings. So we have to escape them, and we have to escape them by using something. It doesn't matter if it's work, shopping, sex, drugs, alcohol. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. That's it. And, you know, if you've had Gabor Mate on, who's a bit of a hero of mine, you know, his description of addiction is the best. Anything that I do for temporary relief that causes adverse affecting the long run, but that I continue to do and obsess about anyway. And so all addiction is, is an attempt to escape the ways that we feel, right? And we push that onto our children all the time. Children are naturally, particularly pre-language, children are naturally intuitive, right? So a child knows what I'm feeling. And if I'm running away from how I feel, my child's going to know that as well. It won't know that it knows, but its body will know because it is an innate need for my child to attach to me. It doesn't survive in the world if it doesn't. And so it's that abandonment of itself, my child's self, my son or daughter's self, that becomes the problem. And they do that whenever they sense that certain emotions are not welcome. As children, they need that mirroring. They need my face to show up looking at them through loving eyes, no matter what emotion shows up for them. When they're angry, sad, rageful, joyous, jealous, they need to know that somebody in the world, when they're a child, loves them anyway. If any of those emotions, emotional states, trigger something within me that I haven't yet dealt with, when they show up, I'm going to suppress them in my children. And this is how I pass on my traumas to my children. I do it by the ways in which I interact with them and the parts of myself I'm not yet willing to heal as a parent. And that's why for me, I always say, you know, just because something runs in the family, it doesn't mean that it's genetic, right? It's passed on nearly always by the way in which we interact with one another. Look, I always give a simple example. I remember once I was having a discussion with my wife in the kitchen I say discussion, we weren't arguing, but we clearly, I don't remember what it was, but we clearly weren't agreeing on something. And my daughter walked in, she was probably three at the time. She's quite sensitive, picks up on things very easily. And she said, no, 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 stop it, don't stop it. And me, because I'm not conscious in the moment, I say to my daughter, oh, don't be silly. There's nothing going on here. Me and your mum are fine. You've got nothing to worry about, right? And in that very moment, what I do is I tell her, don't trust that feeling, which is right, an intuitive and very powerful, strong feeling, right? I tell her, don't trust that. Push that, whatever that is, down, and you show up and be all right like I need and want you to be in this moment. What she really needs in that moment is for me to say, you know what, it's really good that you've sensed that because me and your mum have had a discussion and you've picked up on that energy and that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. This doesn't mean we don't love each other, we're human beings, and of course we disagree on something, right? But we don't do that when we're not conscious. We just suppress And then we think, because I can rationalize it and get over it, my child's going to be able to do the same. And it's just simply simply not the case. It's so exciting to me to hear you talking about this stuff, because that is exactly what I 
try to do you know my experience sometimes mothers say to me you know tons of messages on Instagram you know should I tell my child about this or should I tell I'm like they already know they already know it's not a matter of you telling them or not telling them about where you are or what's going on in the house they already know Mm -hmm. and my experience was that I knew something was up from day dot in my house I could sense that like you in that example Because my parents, who are incredible parents in so many ways, they did not have the tools or the healing available to them. So they did the best they could, which was to say, there's nothing to see here. Everything's great. And the impact on me was that I just disconnected from my intuition. And it's taken me years, Josh, to have an intuition about something or feel a nudge or and to trust it. And I think there's so much chat in the world, isn't there, about what's my purpose? Who am I? 10 steps to this, do this. And it's like, you wouldn't need to do any of that if we enabled our children to innately connect with the truth of who they are, because that's how we come into the world. Exactly. Because even your value is innate. People always say, how do I find my value? I say, unlearn everything that the people have taught you about the value. It's already there. It's already there. Or how do I get esteem? It's already there. You need to peel back the layers of the beliefs and the traumas and the things that happened exactly as you and I have done and are doing. And yeah. it's already there. And it's exactly as you say. I don't know if you know the work of uh, John Bradshaw. Yeah, a little. Yeah, so John Bradshaw talks a lot about how he works with, because he's like in his therapy practice, he's passed away now, but when he did, he would work with grandchildren, no, or children of incest victims, yeah, of some kind of sexual abuse And these young people or young adults, when he works with them, are actually playing out, unconsciously playing out their parents' sexual abuse because they pick up on it. They feel that, you know, they've never been abused themselves, but their parents' sexual abuse is playing out within that family system in in the energies, like you say, because we all know. And this is why we do so much of this kind of lying to children at school level, not just as parents as well, where we lie to them and we think that they don't know. And, and it's like you say, they know. So what you need to do is validate what they're feeling and then support them in feeling it. And if you haven't done the healing work, this is what we tend to do, is we just suppress it in there, right? And eventually they will sense, my dad doesn't want me to think about this or feel this. So I need to find a way to push and bury that down so I can show up in the way that my dad wants and needs me to be so that I can get the attachment from him that I crave. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Because all children want is love. That's all they want. That's all they want. So they will adapt 
in any way they can. I did, you did, most children do, unless, you know, you're kind of son of a deeply healed human, which I don't know exists. You will make the adaptations. So I think the work when you become a parent is to, ah, what adaptations did I make? Peeling back the layers so that they don't make the same adaptations. But something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you said that you'd met, you'd use time out with your son. And I'm really curious about someone who's on this healing journey. How do you hold the parenting mistakes that you make? Because I think some people might listen to this conversation and think, God, Zoe and Josh, they must be like these ideal, perfect parents who never make a mistake and their kids are never going to have an issue. And for me, that isn't my reality at all. And I'm wondering how that is for you. I would start by saying if you get it right 30% of the time, I think you're doing well. I get it wrong a lot. I might be, again, This is, I'm going to quote Gabor Mate here. Gabor Mate, I did a workshop with him a while ago, and he said, I have a lot of knowledge of myself, but that's different to self-knowledge in that I can have all of this knowledge, but when you put me in that parenting position, that wounded part of me kicks in and comes into play, and it's in my relationships where this trauma stuff plays out. You know, I can do all the work and be very good at talking about it in this way, but when I'm in it and I'm doing it, it becomes very difficult. One of the main things that I try to do is I root what I do in self-compassion. So I have an understanding that I'm going to get it wrong frequently because I'm doing the work the best that I can, but things still show up. But when I get it wrong, it goes back to what we've already said. My kids know I've got it wrong. We all know I've got it wrong. So I either just move on, sweep it under the carpet and pretend it's not there. Or I sit to my children and I say, you know what, I'm doing my best. And here's what I believe I shouldn't have done in that situation. And I'm sorry that I'd done that and you didn't deserve that. And that's how I showed up in that moment. When I look at my son, who I sort of speak about in particular, he's nine years old now. We had a really difficult relationship maybe two or three years ago. And I was really struggling in the relationship with him as his dad. And I remember saying to my wife, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about this, right? What do I do with him? And my wife said, it's nothing to do with him you're the problem. And even though I'd already was already on the healing journey then, I realized, wow, this is me. And what was happening was, is because he's very sensitive, very much like I was sensitive, he was exposing every unhealthy defense mechanism I had against my own sensitivity. So when I sensed his sensitivity, I couldn't handle the ways that I felt. So I was desperately trying to suppress it in him and he was kicking back. And when I changed my stance on that and I said, you know what, the work here is on me. I was able to show up much more of a parent. You know, I was able to show up much closer to the 30% (laughs) that I talk about of when I need to show up. So it has to be rooted in that self-compassion and it has to be, you know, I look at it as a journey and understand that I get it wrong a lot and terribly, but the most important thing that I have to do is be conscious to that. One of the biggest problems I think I experienced as a child was the apathy, the nobody validating and going, you know what, this was all wrong what happened and how you're feeling is right and let's explore that it all got swept under the carpet and we sort of go again. We put the mask back on, we act like everything's normal and we go again. And that was hugely detrimental to me. So I just believe the feeling work as hard as it is, the allowing every emotion to be acceptable, no matter what it is, and know that you're still loved is probably some of the most important things that I do within the household as much as I can. Me too. You know, I get so much stuff quote unquote wrong, you know, on a really surface level, like I'm always forgetting stuff and 
all that kind of admin logistic-y level mm. actually I don't give a shit about any of that stuff like if Jesse mm. goes to school in the wrong bit of uniform who gives a shit because actually I know where I want to put my time energy focus and effort mm. and it is not on the typical parentingy. it's on my healing I will always prioritize that in my house because I know that then I can do the stuff that you're talking about because they want you to just be there. Like you said, children, what they need is love, right? They want to know that you're there no matter what, that you love them and they're lovable no matter what mistakes they make. And it's that dependence that breeds an independence in them. And I never had this when I was a child. I never had the belief that no matter what, at least I had my family. I always thought I've got to be careful because if I do something wrong, that's going to go. And that didn't allow me to kind of move towards the kind of interdependent stage of our lives that we need, you know, as we're growing up, because I'd never had that dependence. I never had those people that I really felt like I could rely on no matter who or what I was, if that makes sense. So let's talk a bit about getting sober, because I'm sober seven years. You're sober how many years? About eight and a half years. So May is when I got sober. So I'm on my eighth year, so it'll be nine in May, yeah. You touched on it earlier, how... You know, I think this is my experience as well, is that drinking or any behavior that we're doing to avoid our feelings, when we put that down, that's when the real work starts. And it's interesting to me how you're nine months into sobriety and you decide to take your life. And to me, I'm hearing someone who's got so much to unpack without that tool. You know, I sometimes think the things that we use to numb are really helpful because they helped me survive you know, really helpful. They work until they don't work. This is what I say. People often say to me, when did your healing journey begin? And I say, when I was 12 years old and I smoked cannabis for the first time as a way to escape how I felt. Mm. That was the first time I truly acknowledged that I didn't really acknowledge it, but I found something to take away the ways that I felt. And it worked, by the way. Yeah, it like does you, work. It does like work. Say, it worked until it didn't, which was the same. You know, I started cannabis first and then I found alcohol and alcohol changed my life, saved my life. I believe when I was a teenager, did the things that I needed it to do. But eventually it stopped working in the way that it did. And I'd become so kind of obsessed by it. You know, for me, since I've stopped drinking alcohol and you talk about the usefulness of being able to numb stuff, I've probably had a million and one addictions since I quit alcohol and drugs. I don't believe I'll ever be free from addiction, but I try to stay low on the spectrum of addiction. That's how I believe it. Yeah. Tell me some of the other things. What work, tech? Work. You know, you talked a little bit about spiritual bypass earlier. So I'm a little bit more clever with the addictions that I choose in my life today. So helping people, doing charitable things. Yeah. Nobody calls you out on these ones. Well, that's uh, a big one for children of addicts, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, because we get to rescue and enable, which is what we got taught to do. Exactly. And it's a great addiction because uh, nobody dares call you out on it. I've been addicted to counting calories. Another great addiction because um, you look impeccable when you do it. And everyone says, wow, what dedication. And I'm starving myself at night because I've done all my calories in the morning and I'm never happy with how I look, by the way. So yeah, there's that. Social media is quite an obvious one, phone one. I get obsessive, you know, the crux of addiction to polos. I drink three cans of Coke Zero every day. I'm always looking for something to fix the ways that I feel. I'm always doing it, right? I guess the only difference really about my sobriety journey is that today I'm much more consciously aware of it. And so 
when these things become a problem, I catch them much sooner and, and work on them. The things that I get addicted to, most of them are positivity, by the way, is another one. Most of them in and of their self are not detrimental. I actually don't think alcohol in and of itself is detrimental. My wife likes a glass of Baileys before we go out for a meal. And she has a glass of Baileys when she's wrapping the Christmas presents. I don't think that's bad on her mental health, right? I don't think that does cause her a problem. She has a healthy relationship with it. But anything that I do to escape and that I start to try and protect and hide and become secret about, that's when I know that it's becoming an addiction. You know, look, I still go to the gym every day, for example, but I do it today. It's much more of a conscious thing. I go because I know that I get some freedom from it. If I'm feeling really heavy emotionally, I might go and work out for a little bit longer. But instead of like blindly doing it, I'm consciously aware I'm going here because I need a break from the ways that I feel. There's a difference there. And when I stopped drinking, what happened was is I never at that stage didn't have any ways to deal with the ways that I felt. And when we talk about spiritual bypass and toxic positivity, the circles in which I was mixing in were just talking about how amazing it was to be sober. So what did I do? I did what I've done all my life. I looked around and everyone was saying, it's great to be sober. Damn sure I want to fit in with them. So I started saying, I love being sober. This is brilliant. And I wasn't connecting or talking about how I was truly feeling. I hated you're, it. You're re-traumatizing yourself, really. Exactly that. And I took away the only thing that was keeping me alive, which was my addictions, right? My, the alcohol and drugs were an attempt at a solution. They were a reaction to the problem. They were never the problem. And they were taken away from me and I was told not to use them. And I didn't have anything to do with the ways that I felt. And I very, you know, we talked about the weekend that came and I very nearly lost my life as a result of that. So I guess the journey for the last eight years of remaining sober, as in not taking any alcohol, has been about a series of what I would call coming out, as in making sure when the pain gets too hard and I find myself down a rabbit hole, I have enough about me to pull it out and say to everyone, I'm sorry, I've got myself here again, and this is not who I am. And it's like a shedding of the skin regularly. And how do you do that? Like I do that through a really specific set of practices that I do mm -hmm. every day because this stuff is daily for me. This isn't something that I can afford to do every month when I feel like it. Every day I have to be meditating, not for long, 10 minutes. I have to journal. I have to connect to the truth behind all the shit. What do you do to keep, you've used that word conscious a few times. What are you doing so that you're not two months in realizing, oh my God, I'm miles away from where I want to be? Very much like you. So I have a practice in the morning and the evening. It's quite a basic practice in the evening where I turn everything off half an hour before I go to bed and I start to wind down and allow myself to become slightly reflective. I do that doing the ironing, <laughs> which is just what works for me. I iron all my stuff ready for the next day. And then in the morning, I do between 10, 10 and 20 mindfulness check-ins where I check in with my body, what's going on here. I allow myself to slow down enough to listen to what's going on. I do a self-compassion routine where I spend five minutes looking in the mirror. The reason I look in the mirror is because you look yourself in the eye, you'll know you're struggling when you can't do it. And I spent my whole life looking in the mirror all of the time and never looking myself in the eye because I didn't like what I saw. So I do that consciously every day. And, you know, these routines are routines of healing nature that might sound kind of a bit out there to some people, but we're all brushing our teeth for five minutes in the morning and the evening. And we do it for the uptake of our teeth, right? And so I just do the same with my mind and I do it every morning and every evening it's as important as brushing my teeth. And I fall into these routines of healing nature all of the time, yeah? And it doesn't take long 
of falling silent in the morning properly before you start to go, it's been three days and I've not allowed my head to go quiet. What's going on? And then I check in with myself and I have people within my circle that I know that I can trust, that I can phone up or speak to and say, here's where I'm at. Here's what I've been doing. And here's how I'm going to look to kind of amend that situation. So that's been my circle of people in my life has been of huge importance. And it's one of the things I will always promote, by the way, which is in the kind of self-help space, this ultra independence is a trauma response in itself. I need connection. I need people in my life. I cannot do this on my own. And I believe that's just because I'm a human being and I'm wired for connection. So the idea that I'm supposed to be able to do everything on my own, I think is a trauma response in itself. I totally agree with you. And that's why I've been in Al-Anon 13 years. Like, to be honest with you, I've worked the steps tons of times at this point. Like, you know, I'm kind of nowhere healed, but the reason I stay in it is because I'm calling people two, three times a day. This is my reaction. And the reason is, is because this is where the self-compassion comes in for me. You know, because of growing up around addiction and dysfunction, I am wired a certain way. There's no judgment on myself for that. I'm just am. Like I'm wired for fear and I'm wired to stuff my feelings and I'm wired to lose perspective and I'm wired to catastrophize and be hypervigilant and not trust myself. That's where I go to. And most days I kind of have to still check something out with someone because that programming runs so deep. I'm on my own with a book or even a podcast. I kind of can't get out of it. We know as well, the basic science, if you want to get scientific about it, that the brain develops based on its environment in those initial years, and it does 75% of its development in that stage. We know that because of neuroplasticity, that we can change those pathways as adults, but it takes a lot of work and a lot longer. And it's just like any other kind of wounding that you may have got when you were a child, right? If you had some kind of physical trauma as a child and as an adult, I don't know, say I traumatized my back when I was a kid and as an adult, I have to do stretches every morning and evening, right? People wouldn't say to me, "Core, you have, you've got to do that all your life now because of your back. They'd just go, do your stretches, you've got a bad back. But when it's an internal trauma, people start to think that it's a little bit strange that we need to tend to it for the rest of our lives. But, you know, for me, that's the case. People talk about bearing the scars of their childhood. I believe I still have some wounds from my childhood, wounds that need tending to. They just need cleaning up and checking in with and making sure that they're being looked after. And that's it. And if I'm able to be accepting of that in my life, which I am, then actually I get to live a pretty deep and meaningful life as a result too. So that's kind of the flip side of it. That's the reward of the healing. Exactly, yeah. And you get to do it differently for your poor children. To me, nothing feels better actually, knowing that I'm doing everything I can not to pass on the same pain downwards. Exactly. You know, to try and be the kink in the chain, the one that breaks that cycle, right? Something I wanted to ask you about, just you said when we were talking about some of the things that you can get addicted to, you said positivity. Mm. And I love your thoughts on this. Can you share, how does some of the current conversation around mental health and self-care and uh, law of attraction, how can some of that be unhelpful? Because we use them to mask how we truly feel. So whenever I do, you know, like we've said about addiction, whenever I do anything to run away from or escape how I feel, it's problematic. And this kind of positive vibes only, you know, imagine saying that to your children. 
you're not coming and sitting in and watching the movie tonight unless you've got positive vibes, right? So you're saying unless you're showing up in a certain way, you're not welcome here. I mean, it's hugely problematic, but but we do this. The self-help route's gone down, and I work, you know, the corporate environment delivering mental health training as well, and, and I'm seeing a lot of it being pushed there as focus on the positive, get a positive mindset. I'm telling you now, there's no amount of positive thinking that will heal your trauma. The only way that you'll heal it is to see it for what it truly is. Let's use a physical analogy again. If you broke your leg and you went to the doctor and the doctor said, I'm not going to do anything with that, just focus on the fact that you've got another leg, there's going to be a problem. Now, the doctor might eventually say, this leg might be a little bit weaker, so you need to use the other legs more, but he'll only do that after he's first validated that your leg's broken and he'll do some healing work with it, whatever that might be, put it in a cast, whatever it is, right? And it's the same with positivity. It's not that I'm saying positivity is a bad thing. It just can't come at the expense of feeling how I truly feel. Hope and positivity without validation is useless. It's putting a plaster on a deep wound and it's just not going to work. What we need to do is understand that positive mental and emotional health is the ability to feel my range of emotions and know that that's what makes me human. So I'm not supposed to feel good all of the time. You know, I can't tell you how often people ask me, what advice would you give to somebody that was feeling sad? And I just say, well, I don't like to give advice, but if you want some, I'll say, just feel sad. Because if you allow yourself to feel it, you'll go through it. And it's this idea that we're supposed to be happy, that our natural state is supposed to be feeling good all of the time. That's the very crux of addiction, the idea that I should feel good all of the time. I mean, that's a driver of addiction. So, so yeah, I've done it in the past. I would jump on people if they said to me, I'm struggling with the ways that I feel. I'd be like, well, then you need to do something differently, right? And I think, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Let's find a way to step into each other's darkness and sit for a while and see how that feels. That's what I want when I'm struggling. I want you to come in here with me, not stand at the door in your light trying to pull me out. Come in and support me where I'm at. Another analogy I'll use is, what we tend to do is we look in the sea and see somebody drowning and we're stood next to the ring of life that could save them and we're shouting, swim over here, it's all right here. It's like, no, get in and help the person there because that's where they're at. And some of the ways that I see positivity being pushed in that way, I just find hugely problematic. What I find so interesting is, you know, I wonder if we get to this place around the mental health conversation because there are so many people in those conversations that I see who perhaps haven't done the deep healing. And I think that when you haven't done the deep healing, you have a desire to fix someone else's pain. If you haven't properly looked at your own, it's unbearable. So you whitewash it for them and you tell them, well, just think positive. Like, don't feel that feeling because it's too unbearable. And I'm wondering if collectively as a society, you know, that's where we get to, where it's like, let's talk about mental health, but let's only talk about the five ways, you know, five ways you can shift your mood in 30 seconds stuff, because we all yeah. want that. That's the fix that we want. But as you say, A, that's the root of addiction. And that doesn't actually shift anything. It's going to come back tomorrow. Well, exactly. Day, and you can do all the four, four, six box breathing you want. But if you don't look at the root of it, like you say, it's crazy, right? When you think you're never going to heal, you're just going to exactly. be putting plasters. Plasters, 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 plasters. And then the plasters might need to get more elaborate. You might need to go on a two-week retreat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it kind of just keeps going until you actually, like you did and I did, you go through the walking on the coals of actually staying with the feeling. 
Yeah. And look, you know, I say you can sit at the bar of positivity for as long as you want, but eventually you're going to have to go home. And when you do, all your other feelings are still going to be there. And it's definitely happening on a societal level, this collective emotional avoidance, and we're dressing it up as good mental health. And I absolutely advocate for what you've just said there. A need to fix is about a want to escape the ways that I feel. My son said to me once, I feel like everyone in this house would be better off if I wasn't here. And I said to my son, oh, you don't have to think like that. We all love you, right? We think you're brilliant, da, 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 right? I love coming to watch you do boxing. You love coming to watch me play football. And I hit him all straight with this positivity, right? Now, what we do collectively as people is we go, yeah, but you just want it to be better for him, don't you, right? You just want him to be happy. And both of those things are true, but that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I can't deal with the ways that it makes me feel when he tells me what he's told me. So I'm trying to reframe it for him. I'm trying to pick it up, make it all feel better for him, Yeah. What he really needs, which is exactly what you said, is a level of consciousness from me where I can go, okay, I can sense this is really triggering my body all over the place. But right now, my son or whoever it may be needs me in this moment. So I'm going to soothe and regulate myself in a way that allows me to hold space for him. And that's the stage that we need to get to. But what's being sold is emotional avoidance. Do these five steps and you'll feel all right. Yeah. It's great. It might work in the moment, but you're going to cry yourself to sleep unless you're doing the five steps when you get into bed consistently all of the time. And you can't be present for your children because you're doing the five steps to well-being that keeps you feeling good all of the time. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We need collectively as people to be able to get better at holding space for ourselves and one another. And that's why the conversation should not be about talking, by the way. You shouldn't be telling people to talk. We should be becoming better listeners. If we become better listeners, the talkers will follow because becoming a better listener involves doing the work on yourself so that you're able to hold space properly. It's so true. And I've got a really good friend, Nikki Clinch, who's done 25 years of this healing work. And she said to me the other day, she said, you know, Zoe, I'm so uninterested in feeling better. I just want to get better at feeling. That's it. I always say that, yeah. And I was just like, absolutely, because when we have this idea that the goal is to feel good all the time, that's toxic and it's not true. And, you know, we are a rainbow of human emotions. And that's really what I want to teach my girls. That's really what I want to teach them. Because then I feel like actually that resilience you talk about, that is resilience. If they can have a feeling and go, hmm, that's uncomfortable or I feel really sad, I'm just going to sit with that kind of i'm hoping the addiction juggernaut that's going through my generations might not touch them and i've had a few questions from my community for you one of them is about that what can we do as parents you know who have addiction in our history or maybe not is there anything that we can do i think we've probably talked about this a lot but is there anything else that you do that can really protect our children from the horror of what can happen when you get stuck? The main work is to work on yourself, which is what we've talked about, but I will add something to that based on the question. Be careful not to get caught up in parenting. One of the quotes I saw floating about that I began to believe is quite problematic is, be the parent you needed when you were younger, right? Don't be the parent that you needed when you were younger. Your child doesn't need the parent that you needed when you were younger. Your child needs the parent that they need right now. So try not to get caught up, and this is difficult, and I do it all the time, but don't get too caught up in over-identifying with your trauma and believing that you need to parent from a place where you're going to avoid that. 
if you get too caught up in the trap of not passing on your traumas and not passing on your addiction, you're not going to be present in the moment and you're going to parent from a certain place, which is again going to cause that I need to mold and make my children something so that they don't become what I don't want them to be. It comes back to that conscious, my children are not me. I need to create a sense of I amness in them. What I mean by that is I need to create the best nurturing environment for them to be whoever they need to be, free from my childhood, free from my struggles and about them. So yeah, that's kind of the answer that I would give, yeah. That's so beautiful. What I hear you saying with that is they're a blank sheet of paper. Exactly. And if we can can let them colour in their own picture on that blank sheet, that's the work. I mean, it's bloody hard, but that is the work. Another question that I got asked is around supporting family members with addiction. I got asked this a lot, maybe like 50 people. When I put it on Instagram said, how do I help my sister, my mum, my dad, my child? If someone is listening to this who loves someone or is close to someone who right now is in their addiction, what can that person do? When I answer this question, the people that ask it are not normally perfectly pleased with the answer that I give. My answer is that you need to look after yourself and put yourself and your own well-being first. That's the best thing that you can do for somebody in an addiction. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is, is put yourself so first that it means that you detach with love and you put yourself first. My belief is that when people are in addiction, sometimes the people closest to them are not the ones that can help and support them. This is why I believe in communities. This is why I believe the loss of community is a fundamental driver of some of the struggles that we see in our world today or certainly in western society anyway it's supposed to be for the community to help that person so that you can do your own healing work too so there's no easy answer one of the things i would say about alanon i know a lot of people that have got sober because their partner has gone into alanon and done the work on themselves well that was my experience i went into alanon and like dominoes the addicts in my life got sobriety. There you now, go. I like to think that's because I got off their case and I took the most painful decision to say, okay, whatever's going to happen to you is going to happen to you, but I've got to save myself now. And truly that felt like one of the hardest decisions I've ever made because mm. I truly believed in my warped thinking that I was helping I wasn't. I was enabling and avoiding my own pain by fixing on them. That's really what I was doing. And the moment I could hand them over, guess what? They could face their own pain more. And I believe addicts need that. That's where change comes from. You you can't get anyone to change, can you? Painful as it is. No, you can't. You can't. But all you can do is change yourself and hope that that change on yourself will have an impact on them. And that's all you can do. And I guess what that's one of the most difficult parts of addiction, right, is that you can't go in and scoop somebody up and make them change. You can't do it. You can't control it. You can't change them. But you can make healthy choices about yourself. You can, you know, put yourself first. And I think in terms of advice that I would give to somebody that loves an addict in that way is make it about you, do your healing work, and hopefully the rest will follow. Yeah, and there's always a lot of healing work to do because, and again, this isn't popular when I say this, but if you are in close contact to an addict, you've got work to do. 100%. You know, you don't get married to an addict 
who are inherently emotionally unavailable, if you were a healed person, you just wouldn't be an energetic match. Yeah. So again, it's not popular, but if you have addiction around you, that's kind of on you in some way, like you not on you in a, in a judgmental way, but to me, you know, I know for me, that was because I had a ton of unhealed trauma. I was attracting that level of dysfunction into my life. You've got to find out what part it is of you that resonates so deeply with the addict. That's if you love one, if you're a partner of one, right, that you've got in your life, 100%, you need to find out what part of yourself was drawn to that, right? That's just the reality of it. That's not victim blaming. That's not saying you've brought it on yourself. What I'm saying is we can take a certain amount of responsibility for our own healing. Now, if you are the brother or sister of an alcoholic, because you've been you know, so honest in the way that you spoke about that, I'll say this you'll have your own level of dysfunction as well. There's no way that you're a brother or sister of an addict and, and there's not your own level of dysfunction. So do the work on that yourself. And again, that's going to bring about change. So it always comes back to the work on self, really, in these instances, yeah. It's such a important, you know, I talk about it week in, week out on the podcast. And every guest I get on is, you know, I love the repetition and, you know, your spin on it has been so inspiring we have to heal ourselves. There's no going around it. Like we can try and avoid it. But ultimately, if you want the freedom and the joy and the self-expression and to know who you really are, you have to work on yourself. Totally. So I ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be? The gift would be one of self-compassion. I think for all the stuff that we've talked about for the healing work and the working on yourself and everything that you need to do in those instances, it's the knowing that we're human beings and ultimately we mess up. And I think the most important work that anyone can do is self-compassion work. I'll quote Gabal Mate again. One of the things he says is, um, when you act out in a certain way, say to yourself, I'm a human being who hadn't yet found a better way to soothe my pain. So I'm going to forgive myself. That's just become so important for me. And if I could give one gift to mums, it would be that self-compassion. It's hard work out there. It's hard work out there. It's, it's emotional healing work of any kind, particularly as a parent. It's not pretty. It doesn't look like what it's portrayed online. It's messy in practice. It can feel awful. It's tiresome and difficult. But damn, it's rewarding in the end, you know. It's been special to me. So, yeah, self-compassion. Self-compassion is what I would give. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved connecting with you. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists 
and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.